Hello, and welcome to Little Gold Men, the award season podcast from Vanity Fair. It's such an honor to present this next award. And here are the nominees. And the Oscar goes to... And the Oscar goes to... And I can't deny the fact that you like me right now. You like me. I'm the king of the world. There's a mistake. Moonlight, you guys won Best Picture. I'm Katie Rich, the deputy editor of VanityFair.com, and I'm here with our entire usual crew. We have our senior writer, Joanna Robinson. Hi, Katie. Our chief critic, Richard Lawson. Hello. And our digital director, Mike Hogan. Welcome back, Mike. Hello. Thank you. All it had to take was a army of corpses piling up outside Winterfell to uh, convince you to come back and talk about <laughs> pop culture for a while. Yes, exactly. Uh, so we're in, a, we're in a busy time for content of all kinds, as we'll get into with the uh, giant Game of Thrones battle episode and the big Avengers movie all coming at the same time and making us at least talk about, you know, the awards prospects for both, perhaps. Um, and later in the episode, we're going to share an interview that Richard did with Matthew McFadden, who is the star of Succession, which is one of the kind of the recent breakout television hits as we continue our Emmys season coverage. But there's a tiny bit of Oscars news to start with, which is very exciting since this time of year, there's not usually a ton to talk about. Uh, last week, the Academy Board of Governors announced some new rules for next year and what might be the most noteworthy is what they didn't do. There had been all the rumors about them instituting a new rule about theatrical runs specifically aimed at Netflix so that you can't just have your movie run wild on Netflix without playing in theaters. Uh, and they didn't do that. Do you guys see that as, as the Academy blinking in the face of Netflix's domination or, or what do you think happened there? I think they're just still trying to figure stuff out. You know, I, I think that like it's such a complicated issue and the and the new rules they did announce are sort of much more granular and technical, whereas Netflix is a big more nebulous thing. So I, I would I mean, I don't think that, that this is like them deciding, you know, by not deciding. My understanding of like the other side of this argument that has nothing to do with Netflix is that if if they were to institute those uh, rules, um, you know, to, to uh, like restrict Netflix's ability to submit things, it would actually hurt smaller films, um, you know, on the other side of it. Do you know what I mean? So like if, if they did this to sort of, I don't know, quote unquote, punish Netflix or rein Netflix in, there would be damage done to smaller films, um, you know, that, that maybe struggle to have that theatrical window or whatever it is. And so, yeah. it, you know, it felt like punishing the wrong people, if that makes sense. That's, that's something that I heard around this conversation. Well, and I think that, you know, it's, it's nice to sort of present this kind of high-minded, nostalgic notion or, or, or kind of, yeah, high-minded notion that we're going to defend our, the theatrical experience. But, like, the people who are actually profiting from the pro theatrical experience are not, like, the most uh, appealing people in the world. Like, the theatrical chains. You mean chains, Disney? <laughs> well, and, and, like, AMC and all of those chains, like, they're the ones who are really, you know, who actually are the guardians of all the crazy rules and that make it really hard and very expensive to release movies in theaters. And I, I don't know, when you start to think about who's on either side of it, uh, of this debate, I don't know that there are like a bunch of good guys on one side and a bunch of bad guys. So I think Rich is probably right. They're probably still figuring it out. I also just wonder when Steven Spielberg shows up so prominently on stage with Apple, you know, does that undercut his argument that he's the big defender of the theatrical experience? I mean, theoretically, Apple's just doing TV, but, you know, they're going to make movies and they're going to want Oscars for those movies. It starts to feel like he's playing for a team a little bit. I, you know, far be it from me to, like, cast aspersions or question Steven Spielberg. But 
I wonder if that was not the greatest look, uh, if he's trying to sort of say, like, I'm standing up for theatrical film versus this new wave of streaming content. You know, I, I feel like it is much more complicated than it sounds when, when when you sort of hear the initial sound bites. Well, I think Spielberg likes an underdog story, and Apple's this little company that's just trying to, you know, <laughs> make its Found way it in the in world. Found in a garage in Menlo Park. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it does kind of seem like the Academy is saying, please remove me from this narrative of us battling with Netflix, at least for another year. Like, they had such a rough go of it this last Oscar season with hosts and with, you know, with Netflix and with all the other dramatics around it that it does seem wise for them, like, if they want to do this, to table it for another year, to kind of establish a bunch of new rules that just, I mean, for me, reading this list of rules about animated and live action short film and where they can qualify and who can vote on the uh, International Feature Film Award, which is used to be foreign language film, uh, it just reminds me that they are a serious group of people who have a bunch of rules for what they want to do. And uh, it, it feels like a way to, to move that conversation forward. Yeah, and I mean, what what has Can gotten out of like fighting with Netflix? It's just it feels <laughs> like you're standing, you know, like in the way of a freight train that you cannot stop. So I, I feel like they have to try to be solution oriented, especially given that they've been under, like you said, just they've had one disastrous thing after another. Like they're not in the strongest position yeah. right now to start pushing people around. I mean, you know, Can could have had Roma. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and and they didn't get it, uh, and they haven't gotten other things. You know, it, like I I think you're right. Like I don't like to think of Netflix as this kind of unstoppable force, but like so far, you know, yeah, it's the it's the White Walkers. I mean, well, the only thing that well, can stop them was Green Book. <laughs> well, and the only thing that's going to stop them is is Disney, uh, probably, or maybe Apple, or maybe probably not Apple. Yeah, I mean, it's not going to be. We're not going to go back in time, right? Obviously, so. Right. They need to kind of they need to figure out how to stay relevant um, yeah. too. I mean, Disney Plus is probably the most existential threat they've faced yeah. yet. Yeah. Um, but we'll see how that actually shakes out. And Disney absorbing like the Fox Searchlight sort of Oscar muscle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's right. going to be fascinating to watch yeah. this season. Uh, in the actual changes that did happen, did anything catch your attention? I was happy to see that makeup and hairstyling will have five nominees instead of three, because why not? There's a lot of amazing work every year. Anything else you guys noticed? Well, Katie, you mentioned the international, um, the change in, in the, the verbiage of... Um, mm-hmm. It's not foreign language film anymore. It's now international feature film. And that's, you know, it might seem like a minor change. And in some ways it is, I guess. But like what that does is essentially reflect, you know, like you said, like the like the sort of changing ethos of both the Academy and the sort of world surrounding it. Like foreign ha- as a sort of descriptor of things that aren't American is incre- or British, actually, is sort of like a creepy like it, it's just like an antiquated term. So yeah. that's like a little like gesture toward like, yeah, we're like, you know, we're slowly Woking up. Well, they've added all these international um, members, right? And mm-hmm. and that kind of naturally leads to decentering the English language and saying anything that's not English is foreign, right? right. It makes sense to just like, they're not inter- calling the new members foreigners. Although, I mean, it's still there <laughs> in the sense of like you know international meaning anything that's not national, but whatever. Right. We'll, sure. it'll, we'll, we'll get tired of this one in fifteen years and change it again. Although I did find it interesting that it doesn't change the rule. It still can't be in the English language. So, like, British films that are made in English aren't eligible. You know, we'll get Quebecois movies, but not regular Canadian movies. It is a funny distinction, though I understand the spirit of it. We were discussing before we started recording that the, the animated feature rule is that 
I guess there was a rule that there had to be eight animated features released in the calendar year or else they wouldn't hold the category at all. And now they're like, we're not doing that anymore. And I was just saying before we start recording, this is an example of a rule I didn't know existed that has (laughs) been canceled and like my life will not change in any way. So I just thought I would spend some time telling you guys all about it. Anyway, yeah, apparently there was a rule that no one ever talked about. It never affected uh, the voting as far as I can see. Like we never missed an animated film being, you know, category being nominated since the the whole thing was announced. But now they're not even going to worry about that, which is so odd because it's not like there are fewer animated features. Um, I guess I they think, just figured there will always be enough so they don't need to have a rule about it. Yeah, I wonder, actually, my big question mark around animated is, like, how are they treating the, um, like, Jungle Book and Lion King and all of that stuff that Disney's doing right now? Like, it, are those animated Oh, that's a great live question. action animated. Anyway, <laughs> we didn't do our research on that, so I will report back on that situation. But that seems to be like that's the new. This is the new like frontier that Disney's pushing into. That I'll be curious to see where that qualifies. But I do wonder if there if that's a tiptoe in the direction of like we're less hung up on these arcane theatrical um, requirements. Or whether you're right, it's just kind of like there's so many animated films released now that there would never be fewer than eight, so we can just stop worrying about this. Right, because I think that, you know, even when the category was created, it was created in in response to, like, Pixar putting out these, like, awards-worthy level movies. Um, And uh, I I think even even then, which was sort of past the initial sort of resurgence of Disney and the Princess Musical, there was still, I think, a concern of, like, well, it's only going to be this one company that's putting stuff out that's worth it, you know? And now they're like, well, actually, there's been enough for the past, you know, however many years. And so, yeah, it's fine. Yeah, we don't want to give an Oscar nomination to some hack animated (laughs) movie that's like, yeah. Just because it was one of the four that came out. Yeah, 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 it makes sense. Yeah. Uh, well, should we continue talking about uh, the ways that Disney is coming to dominate the world and change all the rules by uh, talking about the Avengers? Sure. <laughs> so we wanted to talk about uh, the Avengers and specifically the Oscars, but also it kind of seems inevitable to wrap Game of Thrones into that conversation, at least this week, because this weekend was the Avengers Endgame and then also this gigantic battle episode of Game of Thrones. And I think everyone went into the weekend kind of prepared to see every favorite character they have in any long-running media die. Um, and maybe what these two movies, what the show and the movie have in common is that uh, there weren't nearly as many deaths as we expected. And I guess uh, spoilers for both ahead. I don't know where the spoiler uh, statute limitation runs out. Um, but at the end of this weekend, like we talked a couple weeks ago about how Game of Thrones represented the end of the monoculture, allowing that Avengers was maybe another uh, piece of the monoculture still existing. How does it feel with both of them having been out there at the same time? Because I'm exhausted. Uh, yeah, we were, t- I think Katie, you and I were talking yesterday and saying like, we felt like we saw Avengers like eight years ago. Yeah. <laughs> it came, you know, I saw it like last Monday. You saw it like last Thursday. I went to go see it again last night with someone who hadn't seen it. Um, and we went to a really late showing, so I might have taken a nap in the middle, FYI. But um, <laughs> the um, that's not a knock on the movie. It's just long, and I've seen it already. Um, but uh, there were, we had a preview for uh, Star Wars Rise, Rise of Skywalker, and that trailer starts with the saga ends. And I was like, and I, I that 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 Star Wars is already on my list as like it's not coming out till December, but that's the end of another thing. That's the end of the Skywalker saga, which has been rolling since the '70s. So like, it's just such a year for these big things coming to an end. And like, Avengers isn't over, right? It's like there's so much in Endgame that pivots towards the future of the franchise, but. Um, it's crazy. We, we talked a little bit before we started recording about death on Game of Thrones. 
I don't even need to get into specifics to say like there are some characters on Game of Thrones who we will never see another scene with them again, right? They are done. And that is true of some of the characters in Avengers Endgame. We will never see another scene with them again. Probably. I don't know. Unless, you know, unless Marvel comes That feels harder to years. say because yeah. there will be Marvel movies for the rest <laughs> of our lives. And, you know, people change their minds about retiring, whatever. So sure, maybe. Okay. But like drinking in the last shots of these characters that I spent so much time caring about over the last decade, it was, I don't know, it's a fascinating experience. Well, you feel this kind of like cathartic release and, and I feel I feel sort of like a- emptied out in a good way and really ready for Sonic the Hedgehog to kind of re-oc- you know, <laughs> occupy <laughs> the new space. And Detective, Detective Pikachu. Well, right, so. exactly. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, it was an intense weekend and it was, you know, it's one of those like funny coincidence things that we were both talking about Starks, you know, like in, in both things. And like, I, I, I don't know, I found it kind of fun. I'm sure, Joanna, you, you know, you were creating a lot of content around this stuff. So it was probably a little less fun for you. But... Um, <laughs> You know, as cynical as we could be, uh, and maybe the Enterprise is surrounding Avengers, you know, I, I still have fun when people are talking, when not everyone, but a lot of people are talking about the same thing at once. And, um, you know, I, I think with the Endgame in particular, like, it has such an emotional um, component to it uh, that even the harder hearted among us uh, were like, oh, you know, actually, after watching 22 of these movies, I actually did feel something. And... That's an accomplishment that sort of, I think, transcends, um, you know, just the kind of crowd management that is the success of the past Avengers movie. Like, there's something deeper with Endgame um, that, like, I didn't see coming, and I think that makes me less wary of its status as the biggest thing ever. I think. I mean, you mentioned the 22 movies and also the Star Wars um, franchise, which is nine movies plus however many more two two more so far is it or Mm -hmm. um and and a zillion other kind of satellite things and it's interesting because we talk about how tv is um kind of replacing certainly challenging replacing film as the medium of of note the most important medium but it seems like these these film franchises that can achieve a serial thing um, they they are the only things that can really have that kind of hold on the consciousness, on the public. Um, and, and it is insane that they did 22 movies and they will do many, many more. This is the end of like one phase of it and it'll end up being, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just intrigued by this, that like it does seem that once and for all, for sure, a single, you know, 90 minute movie or even like a movie and a sequel is not going to have that kind of impact that it might have had 30 years ago when there were fewer choices. And you really have to have like a master plan and the commitment, even just the financial commitment to be like, no, we're going to keep doing this and like keep building a fan base and keep serving them and think about how we're going to do that over time. Like it's a it's a hell of an undertaking. Well, you think you see that actually kind of funny. I mean, maybe I'm just, you know, kind of picking select examples, but you see that almost trickling into even the art house where, um, you know, Luca Guadagnino, fresh off the success of Call Me By Your Name, already started talking about a sequel. Um, there's a great movie right. coming out um, next week, I believe, that was at, the, um, at Sundance called The Souvenir from the director, Joanna Hogg. And as that movie was premiering at Sundance, they announced production on the sequel. Um, and there's a movie at, in, in certain regard at Cannes that is the second installment of this like long Joan of Arc uh, storyline thing that this director is making. And so you're like, okay, so even the sort of artier movies are like, right. we need to tell longer stories yeah. in, in in kind of you know serialized um, segments. So I don't know. It's kind of uh, like maybe that TV has really infected all of you know everyone's brain from corporate to you know the, the fringiest. Well, and I'm I'm old enough to remember like 
in the 80s when it was just everyone would complain about sequels that it was just this hacky lazy way to like get another cheap hit of money right, right. and like the rocky right. and rambo franchises were sort of the ultimate thing of like oh my god they're going to do another one of these dumb things um and maybe that was not giving enough credit in some cases to those films although they really did some really hacky sequels but <laughs> but um but it's gone from being like tv itself it's gone from being this thing that's kind of like schlocky and lowbrow and dismissed to like the pinnacle of commercial popular art, I guess. Right. Yeah. It's interesting. Somewhere Robert Caro's mad because he's like, I've been doing this with the, about LGBT, <laughs> you know, for <laughs> years. <laughs> yeah. LBJ, yeah. It's been making me think, and I've been thinking about Lord of the Rings in the context of the Battle of Winterfell episode and then the Avengers and the Oscars and the way that that was seen as such an event and had these three movies that come out and kind of stand on their own and then Return of the King wins Best Picture because everyone knows it's the end and The Hobbits came out so it kind of wasn't the end. But like you were saying, like it makes me wonder like if something like that would ever work again. If something could come like that and you're not just like, oh, okay, well here's the beginning of our Middle Earth franchise. It, it, it had like a sense of completeness to it that I think Game of Thrones does, but it's been on for eight seasons so it feels different. The, the rules have shifted so much yeah and then there's the question of the the all the oscars that um lord of the rings got which do we think that avengers will have anything i feel has the avengers had one nomination in all of its time or, or has it gotten how many does well, you count black gotten, panther oh i was thinking just the straight up avengers movies but yeah that's well no that's like i mean the, yeah black panther crosses the line for best picture for marvel but i think otherwise like avengers is really underperformed i don't think they've ever won anything until black no panther. they got like the visual effects for infinity war last year um but largely no people have not it's sort of like you know yeah people have not been considering it uh award season fodder or whatever um for this movie, um, coming out when it did, I and and being sort of swallowed up in this Game of Thrones weekend, like I can't believe they did this. It's so insane. And like the, the what's crazy about it is like a lot of us who write about this stuff have seen it coming for like over a year. We're like, oh my god, this is all going to happen at once. You're like, and I'm going to get like, hit right. by a truck. Well, oh I've my god, been, like, I've been like clenched for a year waiting for this. <laughs> that, when you so went in like, that cave and and and. Yeah. Listen, Talk to that old man in the tree. Yeah, <laughs> he told you this was happening in the God's world, right? Uh, so I was just like, you know, but I was like, how did Disney and HBO do this? I feel like it's not beneficial to either of these big stories that they want to tell to have them sort of battling for conversation space over this weekend. Um, and so I think Endgame has been swallowed up a little bit by Game of Thrones. Um, and so I'm sure there's some visual effects stuff that we'll get in, but I don't know I don't know that I would give it maybe score I actually really quite like the score of, of Endgame um, a lot can I make I my don't... my prediction that I'm not the first person to say but I feel like a Robert Downey Jr. campaign is going to mm -hmm. happen out of this movie mm -hmm. I, I well, think for Golden Golden Globe for sure like right but you think they're going to put him I mean I, I guess... don't know why they wouldn't campaign him they've got 1.2 billion dollars to spend on an Oscar campaign if they want to <laughs> and Robert Downey Jr. is a star who's meant so much to Disney like they probably want him to keep making movies for Disney it would be a big you know stroke to his ego to launch a campaign for him he got nominated for Tropic Thunder so he can pull off a weird kind of out of nowhere nomination like I don't know if you try to make him supporting and then sneak him in it would be weird but I I imagine a campaign's going to happen I mean he's I thought he was tremendously good in the film I think yeah, he's, he's always great. in his 
already this already started. But what was so funny? And Griffin Newman was talking about this on the podcast last week, and I hadn't really put it together that like Robert Downey Jr. has only played Tony Stark with like I don't know what was what did we say the last movie was the Judge Richard, mm-hmm. um, like for the last you know decade or so with very few exceptions, and that's crazy, right? That like to have an actor just so absorbed into this character. And it's like, a, it's it makes sense to me in a way to, to give an Oscar nomination at least to a character that's not just so definitive of a great actor, but a kind of culturally definitive character. Like Tony Stark will be Rob Downey Jr. and will be part of pop culture for a long time, I think. Well, and, and Iron Man kicked the whole thing off, right? right? Yeah. yeah, So that's exactly. the seed. And there's also this redemptive arc kind of both happening in textually within Tony Stark's narrative and also Downey Jr.'s, where he he had kind of come back from some dark from some dark years before Iron Man with a couple of smaller things, but the Tony Stark years were really what were like oh like RDJ like he's back he's doing well like everything's great yeah. in the same at the same time that Tony Stark was realizing that like his you know empty corporate weapons dealing and all that was like bad for the planet um so i think that like katie that like that's another thing that academy voters or or at least a campaign could highlight as like a well you know honor honor the performance honor the man (laughs) honor the franchise (laughs) honor the man (laughs) well it's interesting when you think about how many emmys game of thrones gets how many uh oscars lord of the rings won uh, and was nominated for i mean it seems like there's a prejudice against superhero movies that hasn't applied to fantasy movies at least these kind of high class ones but but do we think that black panther has broken through and now that's not going to be an issue anymore or will that continue to be i mean like maybe if harry potter and the deathly hallows part one which is a pretty perfect movie had been released after black panther got that best picture nomination maybe that would have gotten a best picture nomination i don't know right you know i don't know i i think maybe like i but i thought that return of the king would sort of open that floodgate in a way that it didn't really Mm -hmm. And it does seem if anything's going to benefit from it, it might be the next Star Wars movie. Like that with the sense of finality, Star Wars, the the first one got nominated for Best Picture. Like that, it might transfer that way. Oh, and you'll have Endgame versus, right, the last Star Wars. So mm-hmm. that'll then be <laughs> yeah, much more Yeah, and then Disney's like, we hold all the cards. We don't care who wins. Versus Toy Story 4 versus The Lion King versus Aladdin versus... Versus whatever Fox Searchlight has. Dumbo, definitely. And you, you, know, so and you like... dummies were lamenting the end of the monoculture, huh? <laughs> wow. <laughs> Here comes the Mickey culture. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, um, I don't know. It's... I, I, yeah, I think Robert Downey Jr., like, definitely a campaign. Absolutely, I agree. And I can definitely see him, like, winning the Globe, like, without Mm -hmm. any hesitation. I don't know. I don't know about the Oscars. Like, everyone in in L.A. is so, like, weirdly resistant to Marvel. But I guess they felt the same way about Netflix. You know what I mean? Like, that Marvel is swallowing, like, all the good jobs and like that. But then again, they've got all these Oscar, you know, like, you're watching. Can I, I'll just spoil this. Um, it's not really a spoiler for Endgame. Have fun counting all the Oscar winners who crop up. In oh like yeah, I was eight. just gonna say Parts. how many members of the Academy have worked on a Marvel movie. There are at this eight point. Oscar winners in the cast of Endgame. Joe Reed did, wow. did the count, and, and, and it's because there's one sneaky one because it's not an acting winner. Oh yeah. Oh my God. Now I got to think about who that is. Yeah. Um, wait. So eight winners. How many nominees? I mean, like Mark Ruffalo hasn't won. Oh, that's a great question. There are a lot more nominees. Yeah. Man. Yeah. That's. Oh, that's a great trivia question. I'm going to be consumed by it. Does Jennifer does Jennifer Connelly count? Is she um, in it? She's the voice of Peter Parker's spider suit. What? Uh, oh, I must uh, have. Okay, well, if if she's, then that, that makes it nine, then. 
Wow. <laughs> that's wow. All, that's like twice as much as Alita Battle Angel. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> um, do you guys have anything else besides Robert Downey Jr. that like you would expect to see campaigned or would want to? Joanna, you mentioned the score, which I, you know, for a Marvel movie, like they were traditionally so bad. That that one was pretty good too. Um, bro- I would say Brolin. Uh, yeah, he's really Josh good Rowan as the as Thanos, the villain. Um, I think, I think the Infinity War would probably be even more showcase for him. But you know, yeah. that's why I was one. that's why I was like kind of bummed that Infinity War didn't win for VFX because last year because that is so much to do with like really good CG mapping of an actor's face that we haven't been able to you know and and uh, I don't know I guess without spoiling anything they CG map another actor's face in this movie um, and you can, and it's like kind of crazy to see how much that actor whose face I'm very familiar with like his ticks come through you know in this crazy CG rendering of him so you know that has so much to do with the technology um, it's amazing. Performance-wise, I can't think of anyone else that I would give it to. You know, uh, Gwyneth Paltrow is amazing in this movie. I was just going to say, give Gwyneth but... Paltrow like a gold botch or something. <laughs> I, feel, I wonder if Marvel gave everyone, like, you know how Lord of the Rings, they all got the tattoos. Like, I wonder if there's some, like, you know, retirement gift that uh, that you get when you finish your time in the Marvel franchise. They chopped yeah. up the Infinity Stones and handed the pieces out. <laughs> <laughs> like the end so, of Mean Girls? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, in Game of Thrones, they all got uh, storyboards of their, like, big moment on the show they got like oh, a big cute. storyboard moment yeah some of them are cute and some of them like like daniel portman who plays podrick Payne, got like his brothel scene i was like is that really pod's big moment come on and like joe dempsey who plays gendry got like his sort of leeching scene with melisandre so a little bit of that like except you might not want to remember hanging on the wall of your humor, office like comes through in it so i don't know anyway uh, we, should we talk briefly about just game of thrones and i mean it's like we'll have time to get into this as the season wraps up but uh it does you, a couple weeks ago we said it was going to just dominate every single category and i don't i haven't seen anything this season that suggests it's not going to like run the table on the emmys um i would say like did uh Maisie Williams leap her way into the into into the mm. like the featured actress fray uh, in this last week's episode without spoiling anything specifically. Um, you know, I think that um, the actors on the show they, it's such a broad ensemble that the Academy has had trouble kind of figuring out who to nominate. So they've kind of stuck with the same few people yeah. and not really like expanded past those those folks, even though um, that roster of talent is is really deep. Um, yeah. But I wonder with a big moment like Williams had um, in this this uh, big third episode of the last season, I'm like, well, maybe that maybe that's enough to kind of like solidify her in voters' minds. And Game of Thrones is, I mean, I guess as it's been every season, almost every season is so well positioned in terms of when nominations are, are, are like nomination votes are in, like they're just so fresh in voters' minds yeah. versus a show that aired last fall, you know? So yeah. I don't know. I think a big moment like that could like really resonate. Well, and they won last year, even though they had been off the air right. for like a year and a half. So like, imagine what, you know, if they, so they had a big screening of last week's episode, um, at a Grandma's Chinese theater in LA because it was like, it's their FYC sort of, uh, event, I think for like the technical categories, I would have put episode two in like, um, I think episode, the writing in episode two is so much better than the writing in episode three, which is just like run, stab, you know, whatever it is. Um, but like (laughs) Performance wise, I mean, what's fascinating about this season is that Lena Headey, A, it's crazy that Lena Headey does not have an Emmy for Game of Thrones, as far as I'm concerned. B, she's skipped two episodes of the season, which is also kind of crazy. Yeah. Um, 
And so I'm hoping that there's like a lot of great and juicy stuff for her to do in the back three that'll put her like high in, in people's minds. Um, I'm getting ready for a lot of like her and Sophie Turner. I feel like are about to start running the table. Oh, on these last yeah. Episodes. Sophie Turner. So Sophie Turner. Good. This yes, I agree. And but it's so interesting, good. Joanna, to your point, like, you know, and, and you uh, have interviewed Brian Cogman and, and written brilliantly about him. And so the, the episode two was his kind of like, let's get all the people talking in dark rooms. And then episode three is this incredible climactic thing that they spent, you know, 60 percent of their money and time on. It's plausible that those would be two of... Do you, do you get three episodes to submit, right? I think so. I mean, it's plausible that those would be two of the three episodes that you'd submit, and Cersei's not in either of them. Yeah. So that would be a hard thing for Lena. On the other hand, she presumably will have some incredible stuff to come. Uh, but Sophie's going to get those elephants. So. Just wait. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah, but... It, it, what, yeah, what, you know, to Richard's point about like who has been nominated and who has won, like Peter Dinklage has a number of Emmys for this. And it's just sort of been like, oh, give it to Peter Dinklage. And, and I was sort of more behind that in earlier seasons when I think Tyrion had different things to do. And I'm, I was like sort of less behind it. Even Peter Dinklage looked completely surprised and kind of upset that he won uh, the most recent time that he won. Cause he was like, really for that season. Okay. Um, but, um, <laughs> well, I mean, that's the maddening thing about the Emmys is once they start, yeah. they just get on autopilot. But I would, I would yeah. agree that Dinklage is not doing the most interesting stuff here as much as we all love him and that character. Um, like he used, he used to be, but like not so much anymore. And I still and don't like, really know what accent he's doing. No, no one does. Um, but like <laughs> last last year, they had that weird thing where or I don't know about weird, but they they decided to shoot their shot and put Kit Harrington and Amelia Clark in lead, and then that just didn't work out. Um, but previous, they had really only not run people and and supporting, so you have like just a stack deck in supporting. Um, and so like I will bang my drum ceaselessly, obviously for Lena and Nikolai Kosterwoldo to have Emmys for their work on Game of Thrones. Sophie Turner, I would love to see as well. I think she's incredible. And then you know my guy Alfie Allen. I don't think it's gonna happen for him this season, but like um, that's Theon, Theon. You know, yeah, yeah. Theon Greyjoy. Uh, he I, went out in a great way. We were. Uh, I mean. Can he qualify for a guest role in this season? <laughs> God, go. I have no idea. How would you like? Everyone's a guest on Game of Thrones. No, he's built. He's like he's you know he's built he's way in the too grass. high the cast. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I have but, a um, uh, I have an Oscar question about Game of Thrones. Mm, if, if in two years they do a movie, one of these like <laughs> movie sequels, um, which like Downton Abbey. Yeah, like which characters do we think would be in it? Presumably, oh, it's God. a prequel. Oh, okay. So not like we're not trying to predict who survives the end of Game of Thrones. Yeah, right. Wouldn't don't you don't you think, Joanna? Um, no. I I mean I I'm sh I, I, here's what I'm Sean confident. Sean Bean, H bring it back. Yeah, yeah right? HBO HBO will want to run the Game of Thrones IP <laughs> into the ground as much as they can. So if that means like a feature film, absolutely. I think a lot of you know like Weiss and Benioff are like we're done. Thank you very much. We've done our time. We're done. Right. And I think a lot of the actors feel that way right now. I mean, it, maybe some of the smaller actors don't, not smaller actors, but like, well, I was talking to Joe Dempsey who plays Gendry and he left the show for a couple of years and came back and he's like, he was basically like, these jerks don't know what they're saying when they say they're ready for Game of Thrones to be over. He's like, I've been off the show. It's cold out there. Right. <laughs> like, you want, yeah. you yeah. want that warmth of Game of Thrones. And so like, I think, you know, maybe, maybe the adventures of Gendry. Well, okay. and then I mean, here's my other question. Who do we think is really going to come out of this a, a major star that will have a big career going forward. I think Sophie Turner. 
is my and maybe, but like, I mean, she's so good. I, I, and, and she's so good in these last few seasons that it's making, and actually like I just did a full rewatch and I, and you know, Richard and I both like went through the whole season. I think you and I both agreed, Richard, that like she was surprisingly great throughout that we had sort of like maybe slept on her a little bit. Am I, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Um, no, no, totally. Um, I, I think the tricky thing is with, you know, this is tale as old as time with, with TV actors on iconic shows. It can be hard to both break out of the trusted, you know, familiar character that everyone loves, but also to figure out the timing of that because it's a particular thing. You wait too long. It's a problem if you do it too early. You David Caruso yourself, you know. Right. Um, yeah. uh, but I th- I think the per- the person who did it perfectly was Richard Madden, who, you know, mm-hmm. by, by, by yes. necessity yes. of the books had to be out <laughs> after three seasons long enough for people to be like, oh, it's the Game of Thrones guy, but not so long that they're like, I can only ever see him as Rob Stark. Right. I don't know if the, ki- the, the people who shaved been the there, beard, which helped. Shaved the beard. Um, you know, st- started another smash hit British show last summer in, in, in Bodyguard that then went and made its way to Netflix. Like, everything's worked out really well for him, um, you know, now that he's at, the, he's at the top of the kind of Bond list. Sophie Turner, you know, has these opportunities. She has a big, and her second X-Men movie coming out this this um, summer. But it's like, was it too late? I don't know. I feel like it's going to be someone we kind of don't expect. Not one of the main, main people. Right. But someone who's been, like, liked on the kind of sidelines for a while and now can, you know, kind of just stretch their legs and kind of do their own thing. Mm-hmm. Who that would Pod. be? Is, I don't know. Pod. Pod. There you go. Missing Pod. Oh, yeah. Daniel Portman. Um, yeah, this is like uh, Bradley Cooper breaking out of, like, Alias. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> or like watching watching Avengers and seeing Evangeline Lilly, who was so great on Lost, and then kind of spent a long time in the wilderness trying to figure out what was the right thing for her, and now has landed in Marvel. And I don't, I don't think playing the Wasp is like the best that she can do, but like it's great for her. And I was just happy to see her kind of have that success. Yeah, um, I mean, yeah, it's it's hard for me to think of like uh, Kit Harington, Amelia Clark, any of the Stark kids, like all of them not identifying them with the show, but I think you're right that someone on the side, but and maybe someone on the younger So, like, I don't know. Brand is, is it Joe Dempsey? I love Isaac Hempstead, right? As, actually, as a human, I think he's a lovely person. Um, maybe it's John Bradley who plays Samuel Tarley. Who knows? Yeah. I don't know. Mm-hmm. It's going to be fascinating to see. Um, maybe it's Gilly. Hannah Murray. Why not? Hannah Murray. Oh, Gilly. she's great. <laughs> Good idea. Okay, so while we're on the subject of the Emmys, we're going to end this week's show with uh, Richard's conversation with Matthew McFadden, um, who has been on HBO's Succession, which is the the Murdoch family drama you didn't know you wanted to watch. Um, Richard, what did you guys talk about? We talked a lot about just the sort of strange appeal of that show. Um, you know, when I reviewed it, I sort of was like, you know, on the one hand, if I'm supposed to be sympathetic to these people, well, screw this show. I don't want to be sympathetic to these rapacious billionaires who run, you know, a version of Fox News. But on the other hand, if that's kind of the point, if it's supposed to make us question our attraction to this kind of obscene wealth, then it does its job really well. And it's also really entertaining. Um, and Matthew McFadden plays th- this character, Tom, who's not part of the family exactly. He's sort of marrying into it. Um, and so that sort of outsiderness allows for him to be really squirrely and weird. And it's just a great performance, unexpected from, you know, Mr. Darcy and, you know, this guy, this kind of like stolid British period actor to do this very weird modern American thing. Um, so we talked a lot about that. And um, I think he teased the second season a little bit. So um, if you're a Succession fan... Definitely listen. Uh, if you haven't yet watched the show, catch up because it's not this sort of slavishly reverent look at billionaires that maybe people think it is. Is it coming back soon? Um, they're shooting the second season now. Great. Tom is like, Tom is the best character on that show. Totally. <laughs> so I good. Agree. He's, He's so amazing. good. 
Well, I have the pleasure of sitting across a pretty actually wide table with uh, from from Matthew McFadden, who is just one of the most beguiling parts of Succession. Matthew, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Uh, yeah, I was just telling you before we started recording that I was rewatching some of the later episodes in the season just to refresh and. Uh-huh. I hadn't forgotten what a weirdo Tom is, but <laughs> I was happily reminded. You know, it just where the hell did he come from? How do you? How did you kind of make him in your head, and then you know, give it out to the world? Um, well, it's all there on the page, yeah. really. But it did strike me that actually, we all, to varying degrees, we all are different with different people in our lives, and Tom is a, just a sort of extreme version of that. You know, he'll be incredibly sycophantic and obsequious and crawling to anyone he wants to impress and then he really kicks the cat with other people you know who he can't you know he's sort of revolting to cousin greg and yeah and i've met people like that in my life you know who are sort of plausible and charming and then really sort of ugly in other ways and i thought that's just tom you know because he's weirdly sweet and sympathetic as well as being revolting He's got this really keen sense of, I guess, the power dynamic in any sort of room, in any situation, mm. and he reacts. He completely changes himself depending on where, yeah. where he stands on that, which I think is kind of an interesting... It's why it's such a vital energy to the show, which is all about sort of power and access and yeah. all that. Yeah. yeah, yeah. He's totally happy to be the sort of doormat and be, you know, crapped all over, and then, you know, and then he... But, you know, and he sort of shows a bit of spine with other people and it's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I'm th- thinking in particular toward the very end. I hope that, well, spoiler alert if mm-hmm. uh, people haven't watched it, but you know, when he gets to kind of go down into the wedding and 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 you know, really give it to the, <laughs> the, Nate. the Nate. And you 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 kind of are you you know he's being ridiculous, but you're kind of like, "Well, good for him." Yeah, yeah. good for him. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Even yeah. though he's yeah, he's tried to attack Greg on the morning jog. Because Greg tries to, you know, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, well, that kind of mix of rooting for someone and but also being put off by them is sort of the whole feeling of watching the show, you know, because these people are either from this ridiculously kind of almost criminally wealthy family, or yeah. in 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 Tom's case, trying to sort of get get their foot in there firmly yeah, into yeah, that yeah. world. And we're living in an age when you know wealth and inequality and all that is such a important topic and you know eat the rich and the one percent and all that stuff right. and yet we're sympathetic to these characters how did you you know yourself but also in working with directors and and and, and writers in the show how do you calibrate that where you're not all just these horrible monsters but you're also not you know you're not heroes really either no well i think because nobody's nobody is truly a horrible monster i mean nobody is if you take if you start from that way of thinking about it I suppose and they're human beings and they've they have got more money than God but you could argue you know they've had a sort of weird upbringing and not much love perhaps from their father and so none of the siblings really have much confidence in that way the confidence you get from knowing you're truly loved and adored by your mother and father I suppose and so inevitably you sort of you see their frailties and their insecurities and all the rest of it and uh and it's a family. I think that's the key to it. That you, as a viewer, you think that's my, you know, that's my scary sister, or that's my frightening dad, or that's my annoying dickhead brother, or whatever. So 
that's a sort of way in. But we did, you're right, we did at the beginning, we sort of think how, you know, these characters are so unattractive and so revolting in some ways. Why, how is, why is anybody going to care, especially in this, in this day and age? But, you know, I think that's the trick. That's, that's how, I think that's, Jesse really, Jesse Armstrong, the writer, really succeeds in that, finding that balance. Because you don't know really what show you're watching. You sort of think, is it a comedy, is it a drama, mm-hmm. is it a satire, is it, you know? I still don't know, really. Yeah, the show really creeps up on you. I think, you know, when I started watching it, I was like, oh, so it's going to be kind of like Billions and like it's all this kind of yeah. like fast talking, you know, and then it's not that. Um, mm. It's not a veneration of wealth. It's not a complete teardown of that world either. What spoke to you when you first read, you know, the pilot script? I mean, what, what about it grabbed you? The ridiculousness of it, it you know. They've got, it's, it was the sort of, um, <laughs> it was funny. I mean, it's really laugh out loud funny. I, it's it's so funny. I have trouble getting through the. I have a sort of problem anyway with laughing in the middle of scenes. So this is really hard, especially with Nick Braun who plays Greg. Yeah, it got really chronic last year. We sort of we would meet the the night before shooting and sort of go through the scene in order to try and <laughs> take the giggles away. <laughs> right. You know, just so we were sort of bored of it before we started. But it's great. It's to, I I just sort of believe it. And the more ridiculous it gets, the more I believe it, because people are ridiculous, you know. Look at what's going on now. We did the read-through of the pilot on election night in Manhattan. Oh, in wow. 2016, yeah. Oh, that's on the nose. <laughs> yeah, and it, you, but you sort yeah. of think, well, it's kind of great for the show, you know. Arguably yeah. it's bad for humanity. But, the, no, but it's kind of great, because you think, well, you know, you, we can really push it. Yeah. Because ridiculous things happen, and, you know, you never would believe some of the things that have occurred. So yeah, yeah, it really does feel in some ways like one of the first TV series of the this sort of Trump era, the the Brexit era. You know, yeah. um, it has that flavoring while also not being. You know, I think that's something that people, when, you know, before I had seen the show, it was like, oh, it's the show about the Murdochs. No, it's maybe partly inspired by, but it's not that exactly. Yeah, I had no idea that so many um, families control. So so, it was, I mean. So many instances of single families or single siblings control so much, so many media platforms. Oh, know, yeah. Which is how, certainly like local TV, for example, which is how a lot of people get their news and therefore their politics, maybe. So that was interesting. Yeah. What else have you learned about this world since, we, um, you know, obviously you've gotten to be in some fabulous houses and, you know. I've learned that, that some, yeah, <laughs> we've been in a lot of very expensive um, apartments and houses. And not all of them uh, do you want to stay in for longer than a few hours. Yeah. So that's quite interesting. Yeah. You think, hmm, yeah. And uh, I'm curious, you know, this is a contemporary piece. You play an American, mm-hmm. which is, you know, you've done a lot of period stuff in the UK. And, yeah. you know, was, was that at all part of the appeal? Was it like, oh, I can kind of be totally. in a different time in person? and Yeah, totally. Yeah. I think as an actor, you, you're always on the lookout for doing something different. And I've, I'd probably, I don't know, I was... I felt like I played a lot of period characters, a lot of waistcoats and tweed and facial hair. And I sort of thought, oh, and this came along and it was perfect. It was miles away from what I'd just done, which was Howard's End. I played Mm -hmm. Henry Wilcox in Howard's End, which was lovely. Um, But that's the joy, is jumping from, you know, into totally different worlds. So, uh, and it's challenging. It's quite scary playing an American, you know. Yeah, well, I mean, you do it it well. (laughs) You're very kind. Thank you. And I think, you know, another thing that I would imagine appeals in some ways, obviously the writing is so strong, but mm. but in order to, to 
make that writing really sing, you need the kind of right ensemble of actors. And something that's wonderful about Succession is how you all bounce off of each other. I like that everyone gets little scenes with each other, you know, that we kind of mix and match the pairings Mm -hmm. and the groupings of of characters. They're the most supremely talented cast uh, among the most talented I've ever worked with or could ever hope to work with. They're really, really brilliant. And the real treat of the show for me, apart from anything else, is... You know, we shoot these scenes, which are sometimes six, seven, eight pages long. It's like a play. And one of the tropes of succession is these great big family sequences, like a big Thanksgiving dinner or, you know, there's great big sort of boardroom scenes. And we're shooting, you know, five-minute takes. And it's really exciting. And it means that you're really, really paying attention to what's going on, especially if people are sort of improvising. And so it's thrilling. And by the same token, the crew and the the camera operators, you realize how skillful they are because, you know, they know the scene as well as you do, you know, because they're, they're picking people off and whizzing the camera around and usually there's two cameras at any one time. And so it feels like a real collective endeavor, you know. It's not sort of your regular, you know, like cameras working their way around the table. Sort of. So with something like that, I, I would I would imagine that means that you, you it's not like you know the kind of where you're doing coverage and one person can kind of not worry about like what they're, but, exactly. but in this case you you have to be on and in it yeah. at all times. It sort of incre- it focuses the mind incredibly, but also enables you to completely relax and ignore the camera because it could be anywhere, so right. it might as well be on you, even though it might not you know. Yeah. Um, so it's wonderful. It's wonderful. Yeah, that sounds really exciting. Yeah, like, and and like you know, uh, an interesting melding of theater and and yeah. film stuff. Yeah, um, and does that kind of rapport between performers is that just like well they cast it well and so we had it right away or do you have to work at that like what was the process like when you before you started? It doesn't feel like we worked yeah. at it at all, and I think I think they just cast it well, and the writing is good, and when the writing's good. And the actors respond to it. It's a joy. It's a real pleasure. You know, it sort of looks after you. The good writing looks after you, as an actor. Yeah. You sort of just jump in, and and it sort of takes care of you. Like I don't know. You know, like Shakespeare. You have to kind of jump into it, and it looks after you. But if you if you sort of back off and you're tentative, then it's hard. Or and also, I don't. It's very funny. I'm not aware. I was talking about this with, with Nick Braun and Sarah Snook the other day, and we find that we don't. Um, it's not an effort to learn the lines. It does, never feels like, right, I've got to learn my lines. They just sort of go in mm-hmm. because you want to say them. And I walk around sort of with them in my head, uh, even after looking at them, you know, sort of reading a script cursorily. And it's uh, it's interesting. Has there been any moment uh, in, in, in Tom's arc thus far where he's like, I don't know, disappointed you or something, or done something that you're like, oh, I, it's, it's going to be hard for me to be. <laughs> no, there are moments at. when I'm. There are moments when me, Matthew, has been sweating with embarrassment because he's he's been so excruciating. There was one bit where I had to do a sort of C3PO impression to mm-hmm. Kendall, and I was I was just <laughs> it was just yeah, it was just excruciatingly embarrassing. Um, but that's kind of great. I mean, that's fab. There's, I've I've left my vanity a long way, you know, 
in right. a locker room far, far away. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you can still feel that. I, you know, sometimes, sometimes I ask um, people who are in scary things, I'm like, is it scary to film? And a lot of times they're like, no, because you're sort of yeah. not, you know, you're, it's, it's artifice. Thing. Sure. But like when you're filming something that's so squirm-inducingly awkward, mm. do you, f- I mean, does it feel that on set? Yeah. Sometimes, yeah. yeah. People yeah. are sort of wincing behind yeah. the, the monitor. Especially because uh, sometimes you're going up against, you know, Jeremy Strong, who is this, you know, playing this very sort of mm. serious character, sure. and Brian Cox, who's this towering, yeah. you know, figure, and and it makes Tom seem all the more like this like weird wet dog who's just, you know, yeah, because everyone else is so still. Brian described Tom as having a sort of panicky ambivalence, which I thought was quite good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're right, especially with Brian and um, Jeremy, because you think. Am I in the right show? Am I in the same show as the... And you sort of... You just have to trust in the grown-ups who are directing it and writing it and putting it together, you know. And I think you are, because that would be, you know... We're all in the same show, you know. Yeah. I mean, in life, you know, everybody's... You know, and often you see sort of behavior from people that if you put in a TV show or a film, you go, that's too much, you know. Right. They're just, yeah. And I think that's what why Tom resonates... Um, the way he does is because we're in this world that very few of us have any real, you know, interior mm. knowledge of. But Tom keeps doing things where, like, oh yeah, like I could see myself doing that or feeling that or yeah, you, yeah. Know, you know. So I think that that he's even though he's playing a guy who can be really slippery and slimy and not mm. not the best guy, he's relatable. Totally, in a yeah. way that yeah, yeah. you know. Um, yeah. And I think the show is challenging in that it asks us to find people like that relatable. Yeah. I don't think it's an effort to defend them, but no. humanize them. Yeah, you know? exactly. Yeah. Exactly, because they are all human. And I think yeah. Yeah, they all are. Yeah. that's what. Otherwise, it would be boring. You know? Right. Yeah, it would be something kind of like soapy yeah. beyond, you know, sort of yeah. any realistic. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so the show, I, I, I don't know what your experience of it has been, but... From where I'm sitting, uh, the show was this kind of sleeper hit. It, it sort of mm. people were not really sure what it was when it wasn't getting the fanfare of a Game of Thrones necessarily because mm-hmm. it was people just didn't know what it was. But then, oh, as the course of you know the, the weeks went by last summer, people were like really, really into it. And did you experience that kind of build too from as as one of the stars of the show? Did more people start recognizing you after a certain a point? A little, or, yeah. yeah. And I was, yeah, I was sort of aware that. Uh, it became the show that perhaps you haven't seen, but you ought to see, mm-hmm. which I suppose is better than a, a great big hoo-ha and then it dribbles away. <laughs> yeah, definitely. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I got a lot of lovely feedback from people I hadn't heard, you know, actors and directors and producers who I'd worked with got in touch. Uh, and that doesn't always happen. I think because, I don't know why, it appealed to a lot of people in the industry, I suppose. Yeah. Because it feels like a very, it feels like a very free, organic kind of artless thing especially with the way it's shot but with some sort of heft with helicopters and heft behind it yeah. and shooting on Madison Avenue you know so it's a it's quite something to watch I think yeah and the writing is so rich and twisty and caustic and filthy yeah. that uh, it's a lot of Brits writing it interestingly Often the script supervisor will come up and say, "What does this mean? Because this is not <laughs> this is a Britishism, right. you know." 
Yeah, there was one between um, you and Sarah Snook when she's kind of confessing, like, yeah, I did. yeah. She's like, I had a number, I think she says to you. And you're like, Oh, I had a little number. I had a little number. And I'm like, I was like, that's so weird, but I love it. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Because you sort yeah. of get away with thinking, well, that's maybe that's what those kind of people that's say. That's what rich people yeah. say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, exactly. But it's interesting, though, that it's a lot of Brits writing for it because you look at something else like um, Veep, you know, Armando Iannucci, like coming and, and, and really dissecting. I mean, there are venal politicians in the UK. There sure. are super, super rich people in the UK. But the way that Succession deals with stuff, it feels American in a, in a sort of particular way. Yeah. And yet the Brits maybe seemingly have some different insight on it. Because maybe there's a, well, I think American culture, everyone, you know, it's Brits certainly embrace American culture. You know, you get, it's a funny thing. When I first arrived in New York when I was 21, that was my first job on tour. And I felt like I'd been here before because I'd probably, you know, I'd absorbed so much of it through film and television that you instantly feel sort of connected to it somehow, even though you're, and perhaps that's it. And perhaps there's less of a, it's less complicated because you're outside it. So you can sort of comment on it or don't know. Yeah, no, I think that makes sense. L- l- you're less precious about getting it right, right. perhaps. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, what was the first show that you were on tour with in, in, when you were 21? I did a production of a touring production of Duchess of Malfi oh, by wow. John Webster with a company called Cheek by Jowl. So it's a, a light, you know, kind of... <laughs> Just a light, easy. little comedy of manners. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just sort of rivers of blood. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in which I was really bad and really boring. Yeah. When you were, when you, were that, you know, this young actor starting out, was, was your thought like, okay, I'm going to be a theater actor, that was the plan, or did you have sights on other things? Or? No, I, to- I didn't, didn't entertain the idea of doing television or certainly not film, but, you know, perhaps the old telly, but I didn't, I just wanted to be a theater actor, I suppose. I wanted to be, my heroes were people like Michael Gambon and Paul Schofield and Judy Dench and people like, you know, people I'd seen on stage and Mark Rylance. And, so, yeah, that's nice. I did yeah. three more tours. Of course, the business has changed so much since I yeah. left drama school, you know. It's very different. And, you know, we, we talk a lot about, um, you know, the so-called golden age of TV or, yeah. you know, we have, because there are all these different platforms, on to, so which, you know, allows for more good things to be made. Yeah. Yeah, and you see, you know, people like those venerable British stage actors who, you know, can pop up in something and, and or do like a miniseries like, sure. like Howard's End or something. Yeah. Um, do you think it's a better time to be an actor? Or do you think it's just the... I do. I think yeah. there's... Mm, yeah, I think so. I worry about the state of theatre in Britain. But I don't think theatre ever dies as a way of telling stories. But I, I do... Th- there's a lot of stuff being made. And there's a lot of s- demand for new stories and con- that horrible word, content. But, you know, certainly in, in the UK, there's a lot... Seems feels like there's a lot going on. And it seems more democratic in the sense that you don't have to, you know, actors sort of throw themselves on tape for something where, you know, in Vancouver or LA or here or Atlanta, you know, there's so, there seems to be so much going on. Like all the studios in London are chock-a-block. So that's a good thing. And yeah. it's a good thing for the industry, you know, drivers and electricians and caterers and, you know, big, big business. Of course, yeah. And, and you know, you've done series before, but how does it feel to have this, 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 thing become a hit and really critically acclaimed and then you're like okay well now we have to go do it again for however many <laughs> episodes like what is that feeling like when you kind of show up back to set on the first day for season two it felt like it felt like we hadn't really had a break okay in a good way we just straight back into it everyone was sort of going oh this is not i remember this this is like you know it was like a sort of warm bath it was really lovely 
So, yeah. So, I hope... I mean, we all really love it. I mean, at the risk of sounding sort of smug and self-satisfied, I, if I had to sort of create the ideal gig for me at this time of my life, and I, this would, it would be this, because it's, it's something a little different. It's, it's, I wanted to do an American series, and, but having a family in London would have prevented me from doing it probably on the West Coast. It would have been really hard. Yeah. So I can nip back and forth to London and, you know, it's 10 episodes. The writing's great. The actors are great. People seem to like it. So touch wood, you know. Do you have any time to enjoy New York City or are you too busy? For I have like... lots of time. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. good. And I've got, I've got lots of friends here and it's lovely. It's yeah, lovely. I'm sure. I, I mean, there are either, you know, it's a lot of actors in New York. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you you throw got... a stick down exactly. <laughs> into the yeah. West Village. Yeah. And it... That's right. Yeah. 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 Um, have you gotten to see any theater? Uh, no. I My eldest, my stepson, the big boy, came recently to New York to see his friend in Brooklyn. Um, his girlfriend and uh, I managed to wangle them tickets to Hamilton so that's oh, the closest I've well done. been I didn't go but <laughs> right. I was covered in glory you see <laughs> yeah, what absolutely yeah. that's yeah, that, yeah. that's 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 the move that's well that's kind of a, a Tom move in a way like it is yeah because yeah. I've got leverage now <laughs> right over him. Yeah, right, yeah, yeah. right. Um, I know you're you're definitely not allowed to spoil anything but can you give us any vague sense about where Tom's headed I mean he's now um well, he's married he's now. He's married and... He's a sort of Roy. Really incredible scene where Sarah Snook is just like, but love can be something different. And, like, and then they're <laughs> yeah. just so into this idea, even though his heart's a little broken, I think. Yeah. Um, are good things coming for Tom? Or like, is good, are good things coming for anyone on that show? I, don't, I can't really tell. I think... <laughs> I don't know. I think they are. They are and they aren't. They, yeah. I think there are challenges ahead. But yeah, he's in the family now and they're married and... I think they're they're doing their best. I think they're trying to do their best with this new sort of business marriage arrangement that she's they sort of agreed on. And he's yeah he's angling for a bigger job. Yeah, I'm I'm wary of saying too much because I'll get in trouble. But have you read all the you you read all the scripts ahead of time? Like no 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 we get them. Oh, like, you get them. We go. get them day before the table read and then yeah. start shooting. Yeah, they're pretty. Okay, so you don't have it's not like you have a ton of time to stew in it. It has no. to be more reactive. Exactly. Or, yeah. Yeah. Which again, <clears throat> exciting. Kind of it's fantastic. Yeah. Fun. There's no time to get sort of attached to anything or precious about, you know, it's great. Right. Yeah. Well, we uh, we love watching you on it. And, you know, the if, if people who are listening to this haven't caught up with Succession, really do it. I mean, and your performance in particular, Matthew, is like really unlike anything I've seen before. And 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 I don't mean this in any pejorative to your past work, but unlike anything I've seen you do, which is yeah. which is cool. Well, that's really kind of you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you Thank for you. doing this. And Not a bit. Uh, enjoy New York. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Thanks. So that does it for this week's Little Gold Men. Uh, you can find us all at VanityFair.com, writing about so many things about Game of Thrones and Avengers. Uh, Joanna, please take a long, long nap after all of your uh, dutiful work on the wall this weekend. Um, you can also find us on Twitter at Little Gold Men. And on our own, I'm at Katie Rich. Joanna? Uh, Joe Rothis. And Richard? Rylaws. And Mike? Mike underscore Hogan. This episode was edited and produced by Brett Fuchs. And this week's award for the best welcome back to Mike Hogan goes to Joanna Robinson. I've been off the show. It's cold out there. <laughs> <laughs>